John 21. Gospel of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and, called, and hauled the net of shore full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, feed my sheep. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, and he said, Lord, who is it that is going to, to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that we can celebrate this morning the reality that Jesus is alive and because of that we have hope. Lord, would you help us today to live in light of the resurrection being true? 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move and work in every single person who's sitting here this morning, who every, every person who's listening online for whatever reason. Would you land the truth of the resurrection and its implications in our lives that we might live wholeheartedly for Jesus? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guard against familiarity and strike us anew with the beautiful truth that Jesus is alive. And so, Spirit, speak through me or in spite of me, but speak, I pray, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Imagine what it would have been like to be Peter by the shores of this sea. In the last few days, you've experienced the whole gamut of human emotions. Seeing Jesus, your Lord, betrayed by one of the inner twelve, unfairly judged, sentenced, crucified, all your hopes and dreams shattered for what life was going to be like. You tried to intervene. You were willing to fight for him. You were willing to die for him if you needed to, but he stopped you, and he healed the man that you attacked. He allowed himself to be taken, betrayed, crucified. But then on Sunday, everything changed. The tomb is empty. You can't believe it. You, you didn't believe it until you ran there yourself and saw with your own eyes and heard the angel's pronouncement, he is not here. He is risen. And then when you were back with the disciples in a locked room, he just showed up and appeared to you. And now it's been a little while since that day. And frankly, you're a, you're a bit confused about what life is going to be like. Where is he? What exactly am I supposed to be doing now? And at the back of your mind, there are those nagging memories. You remember your last meal together where you made the boast, Lord, I will go with you to prison and to death. You were going to make good on that. Only you picked up the sword to defend him, even though you were rebuked. Only you and John followed Jesus when he was arrested. You watched the sham of a trial that he had waiting for your opportunity to jump in, to do something. And then the opportunity never came. And when those around the fire that you were standing at recognized you, you played the coward. You betrayed your Lord. You said, I don't even know that man. You, who were supposed to lead his people, who were looked to by the other disciples for leadership in the moment where it counted the most. You got scared by a teenage girl. I don't know the man. And yes, Jesus is now alive, but in the times that you've interacted, he's never brought it up. And you wonder, where do I stand? Where is my place? He predicted it. Right after you denied him that third time, he looked you in the eye. But whenever he's appeared to you and the rest of the disciples, it just hasn't come up. And so the question in your mind is, what now? John 21 is a story that is unique in John's Gospels. None of the other three Gospel writers bring it up. It gives us a glimpse into Peter's life and restoration. And it's a really good story. 
Jesus speaks into Peter's insecurities. He restores him graciously. And then he gives him a window into what it's going to look like to to follow him. What it's going to cost him to follow him. But as we look at John 21 this morning, it is Peter's story. But I think it's bigger than that. I think it's our story as well. Even though he's the main character The way that Jesus graciously but firmly interacts with him gives us a ton of guidance in answering the question for us, so what? So the resurrection of Jesus happened, what now? Now that Jesus is raised from the dead and we believe in his name, how should we live? Let me show you how I get to this particular conclusion. The structure of John's gospel is really helpful in understanding John 21's place, not just in the story of of Jesus and Peter, but in our story as well. At the end of of chapter 20, John essentially puts a bow on his gospel. He ties it up with this particular summary statement in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the reason that John writes his gospel, he tells us. I included some stories about Jesus, but not all of the stories about Jesus, for a very deliberate purpose. What is it? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. More than that, the Son of God. And not only that you would believe, but that by believing in him and what he has done, you might find life in his name. Now what's really interesting is if you pair that particular statement to the end of chapter 20 with the very beginning of John, the first 18 verses of John's gospel, where he introduces Jesus as this, God made flesh. Jesus is the eternal word of God who spoke creation into being and now has taken flesh on and come and revealed to us what the Father is like. He has fully revealed the Father, full of grace and truth, so that we might know God. You see that? And then you see at the end of chapter 20 that he's the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him is where we find life in his name and what he's accomplished. If that's where he began and that's where he ends, providing bookends, so to speak, of here's my gospel, then the question that should probably be lingering in your mind is, why John 21? And why is it tacked on after that? And it's this. He wrote it so that we would know that who Jesus is, what he has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, that we would believe in his name and find eternal life in his name. And that really is the most important thing, isn't it? That these events of Easter aren't just happening in a vacuum, but the truth of them, the implications of them hit you and I today. That we too, 2,000 years later, might come to the same conclusion that John did. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. And that what he did, he actually did for you and for me. That he lived the life that we should have lived but didn't live. That he died, not for himself, but as a substitute for you and for me. Bearing in his own body the penalty for our sin. And that he rose again to newness of life. Conquering sin, conquering death for us. That when we believe in what he has done, all that he has accomplished gets transferred or credited to us. And all that we have done was placed on him and dealt with 
completely. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, because all of the work is finished. And so really, that's the most important question that you could wrestle with this morning. What do I believe about Jesus? What am I trusting in for salvation and eternal life? But then there's an additional question. Why John 21? And if our only answer to that question is that it ties up some loose ends about Peter and his restoration, on the one hand, that makes sense. But then on the other hand, why didn't John just include that as part of his gospel? Why tack it on as the end? This has led many scholars to think that chapter 21 is an addendum. Or, or an, a, a later editor's kind of tag on of, oh yeah, we got to wrap up that stuff about Peter. I don't think so. In fact, I think it's incredibly deliberate. Here's why. After coming to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and finding life in his name, there is a real life that we then live. There are very real temptations that can dog our steps. In many ways, there are some, some of the very same temptations that I think Peter falls into and Jesus pulls him out of are the very temptations that we fall into as well. There are five of them. Can I show you? Number one, the temptation to forget our calling as Christ's disciples and go back to our old life. Number two, the temptation to forget that we are physical, not just spiritual beings. Number three, the temptation to live in the shame of our past failures. Number four, the temptation to think that following Jesus is going to make our lives easier. And number five, the temptation to compare our lives with others and allow the joy of following Jesus to be sucked away from us. Let's go through the story and I'll show you where these things come into play. The temptation first to forget our calling as Jesus' disciples and go back to our old life and calling. Where do I get that? Well, the first three verses set the context of the story. Peter and James and John and four other disciples decide to go fishing. Sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? A few friends taking a fishing trip together. I mean, after all, they've had a stressful couple weeks. What better way to kick back? Not so fast. Now, do you remember what these men's occupation was before Jesus showed up in their life and called, him, called them to follow him? They were fishermen. That's how they made their living, catching fish, running the family business. But then Jesus interrupted their lives, called them to follow him, and told them that they would become not fishers of fish, but rather fishers of men. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 5 and look at the original calling of Peter, it is shocking to see the parallels between that and this. Let me just read it for you. Luke 5. Verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let, your nets, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon in the fishing business. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It's crazy how similar the stories are, are they not? This is not a coincidence. Jesus reveals, or reveals himself to Peter by telling him to put his net on the other side. An experienced fisherman who's like, that's just not how it works, Jesus. And a miraculous catch of fish. Now in John 21, when it seems as though Peter was flirting with going back to his old life, in the exact same way, now that he is raised from the dead, Jesus says, Peter, still here. And my calling on your life has not changed. See, the first time they left everything and followed him, learned from him, saw him heal and perform miracles, watched him die and rise again, all in response to this invitation to no longer fish for fish, but fish for men. I don't know what drove these seven disciples to go back and take up fishing again, but Jesus is having none of it. He shows up and in the exact same way in their life reaffirms his calling to Peter and James and John who are there in both stories. And when Peter recognizes this, he doesn't even wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps in and swims the remaining 100 meters to go and be with Jesus on the shore. Now before we move on, I just have to ask, what about you? Are you ever tempted to live like the death and resurrection of Jesus didn't happen? All of us at times battle with the temptation of going back to our old way of life, our old calling, our old dreams and desires, our old patterns of sin. We know who Jesus is. We found life in his name. But the temptation to go back is like a siren song to us, drawing us in. Just as Jesus shows up and reminds them who he is and who they are and what their calling is now to be fishers of men, Jesus does that to us too, doesn't he? From time to time, he needs to remind us of who we are, of what he has called us to do. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't have vocations apart from preaching the gospel. Lord knows the Bible says plenty about our vocations and our calling and how that is God's work as well. But it does mean that we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price, and that means that we have a new calling that is placed upon our lives. And we, like Peter, are also to be fishers of men. When Peter realizes that it is Jesus he does what you and I should do when we realize, wait a second, I still have this calling. Immediately he returns to Jesus and his calling, swimming the last hundred meters. And just as his first denial began at a meeting, at a meal, so now his restoration is going to take place at a meal. If, if the last meal was called the last supper, maybe we could call this, I don't know, the last breakfast, Gets far less publicity. But this leads into the second temptation. The temptation to forget that we are physical beings, not just 
spiritual beings. Now, this is a somewhat minor point in the story here, but a big deal in the grand scheme of life. Did you catch the vivid detail of the story? 153 fish, a charcoal fire. That's a lot of fish. Why include these details that are seemingly so insignificant? Well, because John here is recording another of Jesus' miracles, recorded in great deal for all to remember, and another sign to point to who he is, as if dying and rising again doesn't, you know, become the ultimate thing. So John records, and he records now that this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to them, the disciples, after the resurrection. And what does Jesus do? He invites them to share a meal. Something so seemingly ordinary and yet extraordinary. Something that is, apart from the fanfare and bustle and hustle of Jerusalem, but now around the lake that they knew to be home, Jesus shares a breakfast meal. He eats with them. Why don't you go clean some of those fish and put them on the charcoal fire that I prepared? Might seem a small detail, but Jesus eats after the resurrection. It tells us something, that he has a physical body, and that's significant for a few reasons. Let me just share what they are. Jesus is no mere apparition or spirit or hallucination. He is flesh and blood. He is alive, and he eats. And even though he isn't as recognizable as we would often expect, he still has a body and is capable of and needs to do things like eat meals. The Apostle Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection What that means is that in so many ways, Jesus' resurrection body and Jesus' resurrection is the prototype of what God is going to do in all of us who are in him at the resurrection. Why is that important? Because God's heart is not to usher us into a pure spiritual reality, but once again to unite the two, body and spirit So it will be in the renewal of all things. Too many Christians imagine heaven as us becoming angels or getting our wings or some nonsense like that that isn't actually in the Bible at all. It's why so many Christians, I think, live without eternity in mind because what we imagine eternity to be like is actually a subhuman existence. A purely spiritual reality seems not all that compelling because we are people of flesh and blood, but the resurrection of Jesus and the physicality of that show us that our future in him is with a new body. Only we'll get to be with God, walking with him in a garden like Adam and Eve did all those years ago. In this small act of kindness from Jesus, this sharing a meal, Jesus is showing us that we are and continue to be physical beings, not just spiritual beings. Why do I bring that up? Because I find that there's a temptation among many Christians to be too hyper-spiritual and forget the physicality of our bodies. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that we can possibly do is take a nap (laughs) or eat a healthy meal or exercise. 
Guys, we are far more interconnected, body and spirit, than many of us would like to admit. And the Bible has much to say about our bodies. This is a good thing. They don't limit us, but rather this is how God created us to live. See, one of the reasons that Jesus went through all that he did was to not just redeem us spiritually, but to redeem our bodies as well and all of creation. Now, it's here during the meal when things start to get really good. They finish breakfast, and Jesus turns to Peter and asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you know the formality of this particular question? And then again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? To which Peter breaks down. He says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, Jesus, in his formality here with Peter, is either being really cruel or really gracious. And Jesus is never cruel. Just as Peter denied him three times, so now Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity to affirm and reaffirm his love and devotions. How many, th- how many times? Three. And so after each affirmation, Jesus reaffirms the calling he has placed on his life and the leadership that he has given. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Feed my sheep. Simon, Peter, be a shepherd to my people. Be a pastor to my people. We're told that Peter is grieved after the third time. And we don't have to wonder why the implications. Of course he is. It is bringing to the front of his mind his failure, his shame, the moment that he is most embarrassed by when he let Jesus down. But Jesus is bringing that up to the center of his mind because he is not done with him. The third temptation that we see in Peter's story is the temptation to live in the shame of our past failures. Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, is unwilling to let Peter be defined by his worst moment, by his failure. And so he goes right there. He enters the most vulnerable place, the deepest shame, and he brings healing. He lets Peter undo it, and he reaffirms them in the presence of everybody else. Jesus says, Peter, your failure is not what is going to define you. I am what is going to define you. My calling on your life isn't primarily about you and your strength and your fortitude, but mine and what I have done for you. That is what defines you, Peter. So go now, and in that strength, lead my people. Shame is a powerful, powerful enemy, friends. The belief that if people really knew me, if they knew what I was really like, If they knew what I had done, they would hate me. They would reject me. They would be repulsed by me. And so many of us spend our life hiding, pretending, trying to forget, living in shame. Peter is at a very significant crossroads here, isn't he? 
Is he going to be defined by his complete and utter failure? Or is he going to be defined by something else? Jesus enters into Peter's deepest shame, and he gives him a new identity. Brothers and sisters, in so many ways, we are Peter, are we not? Yes, we know that Jesus died. We know that Jesus rose for us. But we forget that it is that that now defines us, not our performance. Not our worst moment. Not our deepest shame. See, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus knows your worst moment. And he loves you anyway. That's why he came. That's why he bled and died. To pay a very real debt. Because it's not that your sin is no big deal. No, it is. That's why he came. That's why he suffered. So that that moment, that act, whatever that is, that you wouldn't dream of ever letting another person know, that is not what defines you anymore. And Jesus, in his love for Peter, goes to the point of his greatest vulnerability, and he roots it out, because he's got work for Peter to do. Romans 5.8 reminds us, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so he says, Peter, do you love me more than anything? Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. Isn't that the question for us, you guys? Yes, Jesus is the Christ, and we have found life by believing in his name. But really, the most important question for us today is this. Kyle, do you love me more than anything else? Fill in the blank with your name. Do you love me more than anything else? Don't give in to the temptation to let your past failures define you. Don't hyper-spiritualize your life and forget that you are flesh and blood. Don't go back to your old life and calling. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Two more temptations, let me show you. The fourth, the temptation to think that following Jesus is going to make our lives easier. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. There are those words again. Peter, you're going to feed my sheep and you're going to tend my lambs, you're going to lead my people, but it's going to cost you. In fact, Peter, just as I have died for you, so now you are going to die for me. And so I'm not just reaffirming and calling you to follow me. I'm telling you what it's going to cost. And I'm saying, follow me anyway. And Peter did. History tells us that around 64 AD, Peter was crucified in the city of Rome upside down, not believing that he was worthy to die in the same way that his Lord died. Sometimes you and I believe the lie that when we give our lives to Jesus, everything gets easier. You ever believe that one? God, where are you? Why is this hard thing happening to me? Why am I suffering? I gave my life to you. I thought things were going to go easy from now on. Now, in some ways, this is true. We have peace in areas of our life that we've never had peace before. There's a deep contentment and joy knowing that we are loved more than we could ever imagine. Someone has borne our, our sin and removed our shame. And yet, even though we get peace there, we often find that life becomes more difficult. 
We are rejected by those who hate Jesus and what he stands for. Now, Peter's life was a good life, but it was not an easy life. It was a hard life. It cost him everything. Don't believe for a second that if you come to Jesus and find life in his name, that everything goes smooth from here on out. Now, we would expect Peter to take this news in stride and say, of course, Jesus, I will follow you to whatever end. You saw my worst moment, and you love me anyway. You have reaffirmed me. I'm going to step into that. Now that I know that you love me, I will willingly die for you. You bore my sin and have completed my salvation. But what does Peter say? What about John? That's what he says. Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And he goes, what about John? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to die for you too? And Jesus' response is perfect, isn't it? Don't worry about what I'm doing in John's life. Don't worry about him if he remains until the end, until I come back. You, Peter, you follow me. This is the last temptation we see in John 21. The temptation to compare our lives with others and allow the joy of following Jesus to be sucked from our life. You ever been there? Guys, I have left so much joy on the table in my life because I fixated not on what God was doing in my life, but what God was doing in somebody else's life and wondering, when's my turn? Do you ever play the comparison game? God, why does everything they do turn out so well, but not me? God, why do they get to have healthy children, but I don't? God, why have they been recognized for their work, but I seem to be forgotten? God, why did they make the team, but I didn't? God, why did they get to find a spouse in their early 20s, but I'm 30 and I'm still looking? Jesus' response to this question is stark, but it is kind. Peter, don't worry about what I'm doing in John's life. You follow me and experience the joy of your master. John 21 ends with these words, John the disciple signing off. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. That's kind of funny, isn't it? I wrote it. It's true. (laughs) This is being written toward the end of John's life. The other gospels have probably been written. He's, He's given us one more take. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to wrestle with John's conclusion and purpose. That these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. Do you have life in his name? If not, what more could convince you? There are thousands more stories that could have been written. But John is saying, these stories are enough for you to know. These stories are sufficient for you to know who Jesus is and why he came and why that matters for you. Some of you this morning or some of you listening online need to know that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life for you because you didn't. And he died as a sacrifice because you needed one. Your sin separated you from God, but Jesus pays the price for you. And he rose in victory over Satan's sin and death because you need someone to be your victor and your champion. And what you need to do this morning is to believe in his name, is to put your faith and trust in him and find life. That's why he came this morning. 
And yes, there are many other stories, there are many other proofs, but you know enough today. And so the question is, are you going to believe and trust in him? I would say the majority of you that came this morning, however, already settled that. You know him. You believe in him. You found life in his name. But maybe one of these five temptations is dogging your steps like crazy. You're tempted to forget your calling and go back to your old life. You're tempted to over-spiritualize life and forget that you're a physical being too. You're tempted to live in the shame of your past failures. You're tempted to think that following Jesus is it's going to make your life easier. And because of that, you're not prepared for suffering. Or you're giving into the temptation over and over and over again to keep saying, what about him? What about her? God, why are you doing that in their life or in their life but not in my life? And you're allowing the joy of walking with Jesus to be sucked right out of you right now. Which of those temptations is speaking the loudest to you this morning? Jesus' question to Peter, I think, is a great one that pulls us out of the hole. It's this. Do you love me more than anything else? And if so, follow me. Let's pray. God, thank you for the beautiful truth of this story. Thank you that as you read Peter, you read us as well. Would you, Holy Spirit, open our eyes more and more to what Jesus has done? Would you allow us to to identify the lies that we are believing, the temptations that we are falling prey to? And would you allow us to turn to Jesus and find life? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.